The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me now for a discussion with Ron Hera, founder of Hera Research. Mr. Hera is a private investor and financial writer focusing on hard assets, natural resources, commodities, and precious metals. Welcome to the program, Ron. Thanks for having me on. Now, you just shared a subscription piece with me called Piranha Tank. Financial crime is the new normal. Now, by financial crime, you're referring to the banking system, and I'm quoting you here, financial crime is a profitable business model. There's really two parts to this thesis, and the first part is that financial institutions today, basically the big banks, and specifically the ones that are considered to be too big to fail, they're actually too big for the economy. In my opinion, central banking, and especially the backstopping of financial institutions by government, allows financial institutions to become disproportionately large within the economy. And central banking is really at the heart of this. Having a too big to fail policy exacerbates the problem of having institutions that are really just too big. And so when you have a decline in the economy, in other words, a recession, the spread between the size of the economy and the size of the financial sector becomes much larger. So if you have a too-big-to-fail policy where you're going to bail banks out or where they're going to try to maintain their revenues and profits, then that's problematic because the economy can't support institutions that are that large. And that opens the door to financial crime. And traditionally, this has been going on for quite some time. And when financial crime exists, these institutions are typically fine. But as you put it, that's just the cost of doing business. Well, in terms of it being a a business model, there's another facet to this, which is that once you have a too-big-to-fail policy, what that means is that the people at the top of the bank are too big to jail, that they're really too big to bail. You can't support these institutions, but you can't have substantial legal action against them. In other words, you can't break them up or you can't really risk having legal action that could destroy the firm. There's a bias to lay off in terms of enforcing regulations and especially in terms of criminal action with respect to these institutions. And I think we've seen that with MF Global. We probably won't see it with PFG Best because it's kind of a small fish comparatively. I mean, we're talking about $225 million, I think, versus $1.6 billion with the MF Global debacle. The problem is when you have these too-big-to-fail institutions and they're backstopped and guaranteed in effect, what you're doing is indemnifying them against the liability of any criminal action. And as I was pointing out earlier, when the institutions are too large for the economy, you're in a situation where to maintain their profit margins and revenues they're going to be almost compelled to engage in increasingly shady activities as the economy declines. This is the problem now, is that it's not just moral hazard. You've actually opened the door 
to financial crime. They're almost compelled to engage in shady activities in order to maintain their revenues and profits as the economy declines. Now, of course, you can blame that on the moral failure of specific individuals. But the problem is much deeper than that, because the crimes that are committed are basically going to be whitewashed. I mean, they're going to be papered over, and that money printing or government borrowing, however the case may be, that actually is going to dilute the money supply, cause inflation, and ultimately, and this is where it goes beyond moral hazard, the real cost is going to be borne by workers, by savers, by taxpayers. What's happening is you've got victims paying the penalties of the criminals that have committed crimes against them. What's the solution? Is there one? Yeah, the solution is fundamental reform. And that fundamental reform has to involve basically eliminating the too-big-to-fail policy. That has to be removed. And I think we need to downsize the financial sector. These institutions are simply too big to be supported by the economy. If the economy declines, and we've had a substantial decline here in the United States, it's much worse in Europe, in Spain, Greece in particular. When you have these huge declines in the economy, you can't just keep pumping money into banks to maintain their balance sheets and maintain their leverage, basically. That just means that the economy will continue to decline while the banks are made whole. And they're not going to be able to make loans into the economy. So it's a disconnect between what's happening in the financial system and what's happening in the real economy. And as long as the banks are artificially propped up and basically indemnified against any type of legal action and never really have to face the consequences of reckless risk-taking, as long as that's true, there really isn't any way to bring the economy back. So you've got to get rid of this too-big-to-fail policy. It has to go. This can't possibly be done with the government that we have in power, and even when that government eventually changes, nobody is strong enough to make that happen. There has to be some sort of inherent collapse before that happens. We're a reactionary culture. Unless there's a collapse, I don't see any rebuild, do you? any reform. That's a great point. And I think that the will to make political changes, I mean, ultimately, it is lawmakers who have to change the laws. It is ultimately lawmakers that have to do things like in the United States, audit the Federal Reserve and have sensible regulations rather than thousands of pages of convoluted regulations with blanks to be filled in by lobbyists. We're in a situation where the political will doesn't currently exist, and I think that it will eventually exist. The question is, what are the conditions under which that fundamental reform will take place? What are the political precursors to that reform? And I think the answer is that we're really not close to having that fundamental reform. I'm going to set aside the possibility of a catastrophic collapse of the banking system, which I'm not ruling out. In theory, that actually could happen. And obviously, if that did happen, there would be many, many political ramifications and restructuring would then follow. But let's set that aside. Well, let's say there isn't a catastrophic collapse. What you're looking at now is actually a timeline, a sort of a countdown to change, a countdown to reform. You're looking at a time frame during which the current policies will remain in place. In other words, the bailouts, the artificial support for these institutions, the too-big-to-fail policy, the de facto indemnification of these financial institutions against any action related to criminal activity. Those are the present conditions, but just project that forward. I would point out earlier that I believe the underlying economy, because of this disconnect, between what's happening in the financial sector because of these policies and what's happening in the real economy, I think that disconnect will keep getting bigger. I mean, I don't see any robust, broad-based recovery, let's say, in the U.S. economy. And obviously, conditions are deteriorating significantly in Europe and even in the U.K. So given that that's the case, I think it's basically a slow-burning fuse. We're looking at a deteriorating economic situation where ordinary people and are going to be increasingly impoverished, where the middle class is going to be increasingly wiped out. And as that proceeds, 
we will eventually cross some threshold where there will be fundamental political upheaval, political change, and where finally there'll be policy changes. Is there some sort of golden way across the board to go into Chapter 11, whether it be the banking system or the U.S. government? Because essentially everyone in the U.S. could donate their salaries year after year and will never cover through taxes the national debt. It is a complex situation, and the basic fundamental problem is, in fact, debt. I think that it would be helpful to nationalize central banks, and I'm not a socialist by any means, but I believe that governments should issue their own currencies. I don't think that it really makes sense for governments to borrow their currency into existence from private banks that create that currency ex nihilo, in other words, from thin air, and then have that money owed back to those private bankers when, in fact, they just created it from thin air in the first place with interest and put that burden on taxpayers and especially on future generations. I think that's a completely absurd way to fund a government. I think governments should just issue their own currency. Why? Because most of the debt is actually interest. Right now, the Treasury is issuing, I think, about $3 trillion a year in total Treasury issuance. It's much more than the budget deficit. It's more than twice the budget deficit. And the reason is that interest accrues, and if the government still has a deficit, of course, all the existing debt has to be rolled forward. We're on an unsustainable course. So I think one of the reforms has to be to nationalize the central banks. Just take over the central bank function, get rid of the institution of central banking. I I really think that's at the heart of this too-big-to-fail problem. Can we trust this government to run our banks? Can we trust the federal government of the United States to run our banks? Well, the Federal Reserve doesn't really run the banks per se. I mean, the regulatory authority actually falls on the government rather than on the central bank. If you had a central bank, we actually should go back to the original purpose of central banking, which was to have a lender of last resort to backstop the system. But I don't see why a public bank couldn't serve that same function. In fact, it obviously could. So there's really no reason to have these private creditors as intermediaries siphoning off tax revenue from the government and having the government accrue debt as a function of interest. So that really doesn't make any sense to me. So I think that is one of the reforms that we should entertain. And then, of course, breaking up the too-big-to-fail banks and reinstating sensible measures like Glass-Steagall, those are the things that need to happen. The real devil is in the details as to just how would you break these banks up? Just how would you delever the system? Because there are multiple facets to it. It's not just public and private debt, and it's not just debt that banks hold themselves. It's also the -the over-the-counter derivatives, which is a massive pool of uh, essentially risk. I mean, these are wagers, basically bets. They're very risky. Private contracts like interest rate swaps and credit default swaps, I mean, we've all heard these terms. But that pile of financial instruments is over $700 trillion right now today. That's roughly 10 times world GDP, and that's leverage. So when we're saying, okay, the banks are too big to fail, and one of the reasons is they have so much leverage that if they did fail, then their OTC derivatives liability could cause other banks to fail. In other words, they wouldn't be good for the obligations they have as a function of their derivatives exposure. Given that that's the case, you've got to get rid of these derivatives contracts. And so that would be another fundamental reform. Tear up those contracts. They've got to be banned, invalidated. You've advocated investment in land, hard assets, precious metals. Given that you face the risk of policy-induced inflation on the one hand, meaning that central banks stand ready to provide any necessary financial support, not just to banks, but to governments, and even to financial markets. 
it's more than an inflationary policy. I mean, we have a policy of radical inflation, and there is a theoretical risk of hyperinflation. Under normal circumstances, that risk would be intolerable, and it should not even exist, but it does exist. So that's the one risk that you face as an investor, is that you could have runaway inflation. Now, if you have debts, inflation could serve your interests. As long as you can service the debt, the real value of debt shrinks away, because the debt is still owed in nominal terms, whereas the value of the currency falls. If your revenues were to grow as a function of inflation, debt shrinks away. And that's one of the reasons for the Fed's inflationary policy, actually. And the government, of course, loves inflation because that allows them to collect nominal gains on capital investment. So those nominal gains actually can eat into the principle of investments, but that doesn't matter to the government because they're only concerned with their own budget and with their own debt situation. So, I mean, for example, if you invest $100, you have a 10% gain, you now have $110. But if inflation was also 10%, and now you have a tax liability, let's say short-term capital gains on that $10 gain, you're actually now going to have a net loss of purchasing power. So it's simple math, but this is how inflation can actually punish investors. It's just a small example. The flip side of this, of course, is that the policy only applies to the financial markets and to governments, right? It applies to big banks, too big to fill banks. Conversely, investors also face deflationary pressures. So in the broad general economy, what you might call the real economy or what we might colloquially call Main Street here in the United States, you have massive deflationary pressures because consumers have too much debt. There's too much mortgage debt in the system, too much credit card debt. Now there's a trillion dollars worth of student loans in the system. So there's really too much debt, especially under these difficult economic circumstances. It becomes more difficult to service debt in a recessionary environment, which is exactly what we have. So this is a situation where deleveraging on the side of the consumer seems inevitable and where deflation seems inevitable. Given that that's the case, I mean, deflation, of course, it's just the converse of inflation. So if you have debts in a deflationary environment, servicing those debts becomes more difficult because money is more scarce and it becomes more valuable. So the real cost of debts actually increases. So it costs you more rather than less. So you face inflationary pressures on the one hand and deflationary risk on the other side. The only way ultimately to be completely insulated from that, and this is just my personal opinion, I don't offer financial advice, but is to own hard assets free and clear outside the financial system, unencumbered by debt. If you own land or real estate, for example, you'd want to own that without having any attendant debt because it could go either way. In other words, if you had a high inflation, then that might benefit you if you have debt. But if you're caught on the deflationary side, then that debt will punish you in terms of your ability to service the debt. So you're speaking about something I've been a proponent of for the last few years. Pay cash for anything that you buy. If you can't afford to buy it, then don't. With regard to real estate, you can always monetize your assets by leasing out your properties or buying foreclosures that are already rentals or turning them into rentals. You're getting an automatic annuity every month. I think that makes a lot of sense. I completely agree with that. And then speaking for myself, I mean, outside of things that I own free and clear outside the financial system, I also invest in resource producers. And of course, right now, resource exploration is a very difficult area to be in. So what I've been doing for the last few months is actually systematically buying producers that have strong balance sheets and cash flow. And I mean, producers of natural resources they actually have hard assets, but they're in the ground. So those gold, silver, uranium, for example, oil and gas, etc. Resource companies. Yes, yes, resource companies. And you don't think that's risky in this market? Well, I think there is a lot of risk, but I think we've already seen a lot of the risk that has been wrung out of the market. I mean, if you look at the TSXV, for example, 
basically half the companies are trading for more than 50% below their 52-week highs. A lot of them are trading for cash. I mean, if I came up to you on the street and said, let me give you a $1.50 for a dollar, that would sound like a pretty safe investment. Well, but these are classic Warren Buffett-type investments where you're looking at basically buying something for less than cash. So if as long as the company has a future, you really don't have a lot of risk in that situation. So you're not going to bother with anyone that's not producing that may be a takeout candidate that has great assets in the ground, a solid management team, money in the bank. You're not there. Well, I've tended to shy away from the companies that don't have cash flow, even if they're compelling stories. And the reason is that we're subject to price fluctuations in the underlying asset, like let's say, for example, the gold price. So even when you have a great resource and a great story, you really don't know what the fluctuations are going to be in the near term. And furthermore, you really have no idea if or when it will be taken out. Even if it's a great takeout target, there certainly isn't any guarantee. I'm insulating myself in terms of cash flow. So I'm buying cash flow at a discount. So in a down market, I'm investing in companies that actually are already profitable. What about producers that reached new highs in March and then backed off 30 to 50% from those highs? And I think that's an individual question. And again, I don't offer financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor or stockbroker. But for myself, for those companies that I really believe in, and you know, I have a model portfolio that I think are absolutely the highest quality companies, period. It's partly a question of either one, I just wait because I don't care what the short-term fluctuations are. I mean, I know that I have a good value here. I know they're creating more value. I know that it's going to be a profitable business. I mean, I'm investing in producers that are going to be a successful business. I'm not speculating on discoveries, for example. Companies in my model portfolio would include things like Fortuna Silver Mines, and I, I just produce a report about them. And in fact, I did buy more shares. So you, you see the price fall, but you know that the company has strong cash flow, they have a strong balance sheet, they're a proven producer, There's, you see a, a strong growth profile into the future for their future production and re- growth in their underlying resources. I mean, those are cases where I will judiciously, selectively buy more stock as the price falls. Tell us about your research report, Ron. Well, I produce a company analysis, which is a substantial document. It comes out monthly. In that, I have two portfolios. I have a a watch list, which includes companies that we believe meet all of our criteria. And, you know, we look at management. We look at the resource itself. We look at infrastructure. We look at who the investors are. I mean, we really have a very systematic and thorough approach. And if you read any of our analyst reports, you'll see what our approach is, and you'll understand how we analyze companies. We look for things that we think will actually double or better in 18 to 24 months. So I'm looking for things where you're going to see strong growth in not just in resources. Usually I'll buy a company that already has a resource. I focus more on production track companies because I want companies that are going to be successful as a business. So in the watch list, we have companies broken down by the resource type. So uranium, platinum group metals, gold, silver, these kinds of things, oil and gas, agriculture. And then we'll break them down by what I call life cycle stage. So the whole thing is really based on what we call the life cycle model. And it goes essentially from exploration to pre-production, because again, I'm focused on production. And then it goes to junior producer, mid-tier producer, and major producer. There's a profit opportunity at every transition between a life cycle stage. So when you start out with a, like a, a pre-production to production situation, that's one of my favorite situations, because if you can get the stock at a good value, you're basically looking at going from a company that has no cash flow, that's burning through cash, to a company that's going to be profitable, and all you have to do is have a timeline that's long enough for the company to be profitable, and then, I mean, obviously you have to 
pick a winner in the first place, a company that's really going to achieve its goals. That's one of the things that we really focus on is the ability to execute, and we follow the company milestones very aggressively. But I play a lot of pre-production to production situations. There's another profit opportunity when you go from a junior producer to a mid-tier. I mean, when you have a strong growth profile where you're going to see big increases in production, like a you know 40% or 50% or 100% in a period of, let's say, a year and a half or two years, those are situations where there's a clear profit opportunity, in my opinion. I've been speaking with Ron Hera, founder of Hera Research. The website is heraresearch.com. The following segment is sponsored by Expedition Mining, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EXU.V. Expedition has two dynamic gold projects in the Yukon and three in Nevada. Find them at expeditionmining.com. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. In March 2005, he founded and launched a new investment market data service, Precious Metals Warrants, which provides detail on all mining and energy company warrants trading on the U.S. and Canadian exchanges. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Yeah, it's been a while, Ellis, and it's great to catch up and talk about where we're at in these markets. It seems after a few days of upward momentum in the precious metals market, it might be a good time to risk, but, you know, a lot of folks are nervous. They're still nervous. They've been nervous for a long time. This is one of the most challenging periods that we've had for resource investors since the beginning of the bull market in 2001. The venture exchange relative to gold, we're at the lowest point since we've started this bull market. Most of the shares that we're looking at as investors ourselves in our investment services are stocks that are trading on the Venture Exchange or the Toronto Exchange, but, you know, the lower market cap. And these are the ones that have just truly been ignored beat to hell in its rough times and we've kind of been there before in late 2008 we kind of hate to revisit this sad period of time i think we're all in the business hoping we have not lost full-time investors to this sector because we know that at least i know where we're going i feel like i do strongly has this felt like 2008 to you and many of your subscribers I really think so. And there's little that we can do about it. And it's been more, uh, instead of the fast plunge, which sometimes is better, let's just plunge and get it over with. It seems like we've really just been dragging here for months. More of an absence of bids. The buyers have just backed away. Once we turn, and we've had a couple of good days here in in gold here as we speak, but I'm not sure that all the stocks are ready to follow immediately here. So it's going to take a little convincing for the resource shares and investors to once again get excited. I know that this is coming, but we're just still not quite there just yet. You haven't seen any real response with any of the junior mining companies that would signify that, gee, we may be back in the throes of what's been a bull market over the last 10 years. No, we still haven't seen it, and we're getting some cross-currents. Recently, we had kind of negative comments on Goldcorp a few weeks ago, and they knocked Goldcorp down. What this is doing is screwing up all the indices that we like to watch, you know, be the XAU and the HUI. We had news out of Barrick, and Barrick is down about 8%. So here you got one of the big companies, you know, heavily weighted companies in some of the indices, the XUA and the HUI. And, of course, we and, and most of the analysts love to look at these indices historically, see where we're at, and are we ready? 
ready to break out. Even though we've had two good days in gold, we really haven't seen a lot of movement in the indices, and HUI didn't still sitting right here at the 400 range, and I think we went down as low as about 375. We're still not substantially off of the bottom. Yeah, I think all this will come. It's just we've just kind of got to develop some confidence, and we're just looking at gold trading still within this range, and now we've had two good days, and we've touched 1620, 1621. But I think we may vacillate back down a little bit, just not ready to you know, light the fuse and, and say we're ready to run big time. But we're getting close. Do you think gold has to move back up to $1,700 an ounce before confidence returns as far as gold mining stocks are concerned? Yeah, it, it probably at a minimum. It is difficult for anybody to say, what's it going to take to light this fuse once again to get investors excited about the resource shares? Right now on a chart, on a weekly basis, I'd love to see that we get above 1650 on gold. We've got a 65-week moving average, which is usually pretty relevant. Uh, we're below, and that's coming across at 1650. So I'd like to think that we can get back above this 1650 ASAP just really quick. We're getting close on a daily basis and on a weekly basis. We've just been in this big triangle formation and we're approaching the apex of this triangle and we, we're now just kind of approaching the upper limits one more time and so we may still have to come down one more time it's getting tighter and tighter range so you know chances are we won't have to go back much below 1600 1580 or whatever at worst looking at the charts on a daily basis and on a weekly basis we've really got a triangle formation with declining highs and higher lows and so we're approaching the apex of the triangle on both the daily and the weekly charts. We're starting to run out of room. Within days or a week or two at the most, we're going to have to break out of this triangle formation. And myself and many of the other analysts think that we will break out to the upside, but we do have to be realistic and think there is that chance if we break to the downside, what's going to happen? We do think if it, if it happens, it's probably going to be a very quick and false maybe break out to the downside, but it could scare the heck out of everybody if that happens. But again, we all would prefer that not to happen, but we got to be realistic in these markets, you know, to always think you know exactly what's going to happen. Well, we'd all be filthy rich, right? Nobody knows exactly sure, so we're looking for an upside break, but uh, there's always a chance of a, of a downside surprise. What I like to think is that, you know, Ellis, I follow an, an awful lot of other newsletters and analysts myself. We all know that we have not seen the rip-roaring bull market in gold, the parabolic moves in gold, and surely not in the stocks. And I think without fail, everybody believes this is still in front of us. So nothing we can look for anytime soon. No parabolic moves that would be healthy. No, let's face it, we don't want this to happen too quick. In other words, we don't want gold to, to double overnight, right? Because we need time for all of these shares to gradually increase in value before we get into a parabolic peak, which right at the end, even if that would last for uh, several months, six months or whatever, and maybe that wouldn't be the final. But a lot of the fellows that I'm following, they're looking for the mid-2000s, 2500 to maybe 3000 on gold, possibly next summer, next July. It's a long way from right here, and maybe even higher in the future after that. Is it going to take 1700 or whatever to get people excited again? Surely, outside chance, we're going to have to get back to this old high of the 1900 range. Once we take that out, then people have to realize it's game back on again. Once we take out those old highs, then the sky is the limit. There's just so many things going on in the world and in Europe, and, and nobody knows exactly exactly what's going to happen and we're playing on the news every day and i've just tried to encourage you know a lot of my followers is if you're not planning on buying anything today
day, just try to stay away from these markets. The closer you get, you really get anxious and you want to become more of a trader mentality. And I'm not a trader, don't want to be a trader. You know, we try to take some good positions for the longer term, which is always rounding it off to 24 months or so, and not have to get involved in this daily noise uh, of the markets and the news. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Expedition Mining, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EXU.V. Expedition has assets in the Yukon Territory as well as Nevada. Over 12.5 million ounces of gold have been produced from the Yukon since 1896, with a present-day worth of approximately $15.6 billion, and the territory is still relatively unexplored. Many of the known mineral occurrences are yet to be thoroughly investigated with modern exploration technologies. Expedition has recently begun its Joy and Mount Mervyn projects. These properties are located along the rack gold belt in the Yukon. In Nevada, Expedition Mining has 100% interest in three gold exploration properties located within the Walker Lane Mineral Belt. Like the Yukon, Nevada is one of the top 10 jurisdictions worldwide for encouraging mining investment. Nevada hosts many world-class gold deposits being exploited by major mining companies. With a strong management team, cash in the bank, and potentially prolific resources in the Yukon and Nevada, Expedition Mining is well-positioned for upward momentum in the resource sector. Visit their website, ExpeditionMining.com. Let's talk about opportunities. There are some junior companies that are performing well. How do you identify them out of the couple of thousand companies that are trading on the venture, the Toronto, or even here in the U.S.? It is a challenge, isn't it? I come at the market from several different approaches, where we've got preciousmetalswarrants.com. We've got all the warrants that are trading on the natural resource companies. Everybody there gets to see my personal portfolio, and you know how do I come up with these personal choices? All those subscribers get to see this activity. Well, over the last several months, joined the team at the, the greedyguru.com, and that's that philosophy, literally, we're looking at the top picks of the pros, the collection of other newsletter writers out there. What are they honing in on is the best opportunities. This makes it a little easier to scout out, being we're always looking for a given stock that has three or more newsletter writers or analysts following that story. And then, even before the greedy guru says buy or, or hold, we look to see what are the insiders doing on that particular stock. Does the greedy guru concur with the other newsletter? writers. So that's been, a, you might say, a simpler, cleaner approach to the markets with a little different twist than anybody's ever done before. In these challenging times, it's virtually impossible to find a methodology that's going to work for you all the time. You know, whether that's following all the other analysts, whether that's following the insiders, which back with precious metals warrants, I love to follow the insider trading activity. In this challenging environment, virtually nothing is working as we'd want it to work. The overall sentiment of the market basically controls what's happening right now. From time to time, I see email alerts coming across my computer desk, and they're coming from you. You're actively involved no matter what the market is doing. We're still watching you know, insider activity, and we've got several of our last alerts that probably you're, you're referencing here. We're probably up a little bit on the last four or five buys that we've had, but I'll say you know, small returns of maybe 10 to 15% that were up. A week or two ago, they may have been negative a little bit. It's just that if we were in the right environment right now, a healthier tone for the resource sector, and then we see significant insider buying in any given company, we'd be looking for a 50 to 100% move. Now, I always like to say, if you and I were the insiders of a company, you know, we kind of know what our business model is and our plan and what we're going to do with the company, but we cannot control what the price of gold and silver is, and with this 
overall sentiment is within our sector. And we're going to get caught up in it ourselves. Even though we're buying, the marketplace may still take those shares back down. Literally, there's nothing that we can do. It's still a great philosophy. It's just at this point in time, it's not working as well as we want it to work. But those good days will return. And what does one need to do to follow Dudley Baker? There's two choices. Number one, the tried and true, the first service is preciousmetalswarrants.com. Started this back in May of 2005, so we've been around for a while with this one. And again, covers all the warrants, our insider trading, get to see my portfolio. I do an audio every Thursday after the market's close. Try to stay abreast of what's happening, news on any of our given stocks, etc. That's a great service. Just take a look also at thegreedyguru.com. A little different approach. All of the methodology is on the website there. But two great services, as we like to say, the only two investment services that you'll ever need. We just come at the markets from a little different approach. There will be a blow-off phase coming. That's still in front of us, not behind us, and we're going to have some great gains out of these juniors, and it's just a matter of looking for the right ones that are going to compel us that we can really ride up to significant profits. Dudley, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I'll do so again next week. Okay, sounds great, Ellis. Great to be back. I've been chatting with Dudley Baker of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com and TheGreedyGuru.com. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartReport.com. This segment has been sponsored by Expedition Mining. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EXU.V. Expedition has two dynamic gold projects in the Yukon and three in Nevada. Find them at ExpeditionMining.com. Ian Chalmers is the Managing Director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its double zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. Hi, Alice. Nice to be talking to you again. You have some extremely big news in any space, but especially in the rare metal, rare earth space, with regard to the Dubbo Zirconia Project, the DZP. It involves one of Japan's largest, if not the largest, producer of separated heavy and light rare earths. Shinatsu Chemical Company. Yes, yesterday we were able to announce the agreement that we'd reached with them. It's a memorandum of understanding to start with, and of course these agreements always take that form until you work through all the issues. But the deal with Shinatsu is basically that they will take our two concentrates, our light rare earth concentrate, our heavy rare earth concentrate produced off the Dubbo project, and do separations. And they'll do complete separations of all the individual rare earths, and they'll charge us a, a toll treating fee for that. Then they will get a prior op- opportunity to buy those rare earths that they need at commercial prices and then we'll have the opportunity to take the separated rare earths to other customers and we've got lots of other customers around the world who are just waiting for the opportunity to be able to access separated rare earths. So it's a good deal for the project and for us it's a fabulous deal because Shinetsu are such a large company and a long-term involvement in the rare earth industry. Let me see if I can understand this correctly. Shinetsu is not only going to take rare earths from you, they're going to take them and separate them and make them available to you for another revenue stream. You'll be able to put together additional offtake agreements for the now separated rare earths. Absolutely. For example, Shinetsu, a major rare earth manufacturing company, so they'll take out what they want in terms of things like neodymium, prosodymium, dysprosium, and terbium, but we will then have access to those separated rare earths and the other ones 
that they don't want. For example, things like yttrium. Now, we've got big markets for our yttrium, mainly in Europe for phosphor manufacture. These are for your energy-efficient light bulbs, coloured TV screens and computer screens. And then the other bigger volume rarers like lanthanum, cerium, samarium, gadolinium, those sorts of things. We can actually go out and go to markets or to approach people that have they've come to us in the past and said, look, we'd like to buy this off you, these rare earths off you, but we need the separated material. We can't take the concentrate. It's a double positive step for us. This is a new market for you. It expands our market. Effectively, what it does is instead of us just selling the two concentrates to a consumer, to a company that will take them and then just separate it, then they would sell them themselves. We're able to participate like a joint venture. So Shinetsu are doing all the separations, but we will still have access to a lot of other separated material that we can sell off. We get the effect of a better product and the increased revenue that comes from that better product. Well, $30 million a year from your Tommingley Gold project to provide some additional cash flow is not a small amount. No, it's great. We do jokingly almost refer to it as our bread and butter business, which it is. It's there. It provides that long-term cash flow, supports everything else we're doing while we get the big project Dubbo up and running and then hopefully Dubbo can produce that sort of 300 million a year cash flow out of that once it gets fully operational. Now Shinetsu is a company with a market cap of around $25 billion and net sales worldwide of approximately $12.8 billion a year. This is huge in Japan. It's huge in Australia and would be comparable to a major manufacturing deal here in the U.S. How did Alkane and Shinetsu hook up? Interestingly, they came to us. It uh, sort of resulted from a presentation that I gave about probably about three years ago and one of their representatives approached me uh, after that conference and we had a long discussion and there's been ongoing discussions ever since including some of their people coming down to see our operation at Anstow at the demonstration plant going out on site and then just slowly building up the relationship over this period of time. I guess we take it as a large tick of approval that they really did single us out and said well we think you're one of the few companies of this sort of next generation that actually will get into production in the short term so that was a big tick of approval, uh, particularly coming from a company as large as Shinetsu. Well, that's interesting because I found the rare earth, rare metal space to be extremely speculative, if not a bubble over the past couple of years. For many of the other companies I've seen out there, the question is, well, where's the infrastructure? When would you possibly go into production? Have you identified all the resource? And what possible offtake agreements do you have? This is not something you really have to contend with, though, Ian. You're practically a made company. I'll say it. You don't have to say it. But... uh, (laughs) It would be presumptuous if you said it, but with all these memorandums of understandings in place, and some of them very, very large, that sets you aside from many of the junior companies in the space. Thank you, and we'd certainly like to say that. That's the way we would promote ourselves. I guess we do it fairly quietly and aren't out there in a big way, but it goes back to when we started. And realistically, we started on this project many, many years ago, but seriously, in about 1999. So we're at it now for 13 years. In that 13 years, we spent a lot of time developing the flow sheet, getting it all right, culminating in building the demonstration pilot plant, which started up in 2008. It's been running ever since. I just can't stress enough the need to do that. And if you want to show to the potential end users and the, the Shinetsus of this world that you can do it, once you've got a demonstration pilot plant operating, you can actually 
actually show them. You can show them how the flow sheet works. You can show them what the product coming off is, what that means in terms of its quality and all those sort of things. So it's very, very important. You know, if we say we've got an advantage, it's the fact that we've been doing it for so long and it's just not something that we've locked onto two or three years ago and said we're going to be a major rare earth producer. We've been at it for a long time. And that's the demonstration pilot plant that you keep talking about. You are proving that it can be done. You're proving that you can do it. That's the reason for the plant. And none of these companies have anything like that. That's right. I can't tell you who hasn't and, and who has currently got pilot plants operating. Certainly, most of the information that I read show the companies have done it at lab scale, and that's fine. It's great. Good luck. But you do have to do that next stage. You've got to build the pilot plant. You've got to run it at some larger scale because you've got to prove the, the engineering, the chemistry, and all of these things change as you go from lab scale up to pilot plant scale. So it's, it's absolutely essential, and that's my only advice to anybody looking at the rare earth sector is to, to look at where the companies are in that development timetable. Did you invent a process for production? Yes, we did. We basically developed this flow sheet from fundamentals, from the rock. I guess I can go back and say we did actually look at another project uh, back in the mid-80s where we then worked on that. We developed a conceptual flow sheet. We actually took that to pilot plant too, but unfortunately the circumstances, and again, metal prices at that stage, we knew that it was always going to struggle. But a lot of the engineering and chemistry that we did for that process were able to then transfer over to modify for Dubbo and end up with a flow sheet that works, and it's specific to this deposit. People often say to us, well, can other people copy that? My reaction is, well, maybe. If they don't have a deposit that's absolutely identical to what we've got at Dubbo, the chances of the flow sheet working are probably fairly slim. So it's your deposit specifically, therefore no reason to patent that process. That's right. I mean, basically what we're looking at is a defensive patent position. So just to make sure that somebody doesn't come up with something similar at some stage and then try to come to us and say, well, you know, you're copying our flow sheet. They wouldn't succeed anyway because of the history we've got. But we're more worried about other parts of the world where legal jurisdiction's a bit different to ours, either in Australia, US or Canada, without naming those places. But there are uh, countries around the world which will readily copy anything if the opportunity presents itself. So it's more there to protect what we know and the fact that we don't want to be hit with some kind of an approach in the future. Well, how do you protect your process from a country that may or may not have a similar deposit, let's say China? It's very hard. Realistically, I mean, and again, putting it bluntly, one of the big issues with patenting a process is the moment you patent it, the moment it goes into the public domain, virtually anybody can copy it. So you then left just, you leave yourself open. Most people don't want to get into long-term legal arguments with a, other companies or countries over that. The only way we've achieved it to date is being very circumspect about what information we release. You know, there are numerous people that have worked on the project now over many years. There will be information about it, but there are very few people that have all of the knowledge from the very beginning of the process to the final stages. There are people who have individual components. So that's the only way that we can actually protect the process to the best of our ability. And at the end of the day, you still have these offtake agreements. Correct, that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, they're MOUs, they have to be converted into proper offtake agreements, but they're a very good starting point. And to me, that's what it boils down to the end of the day. Once we've got offtakes in place, the project is going, our markets are fairly secure. Unless somebody comes in and really has an extremely uh, cheap process where they can undercut us in terms of pricing, we think we're pretty secure. And the fact that the project is located in a very favourable location, both from a an environmental sense, a technical sense, an operational sense, 
events, all of those issues make it at the location of the project very good. So once you're operating, once you've got up and you've paid back your capital costs, then you're in a pretty secure place. And that's our target. That's why we believe we need to get into production. Speaking of production, you're slated to begin at Tommingley sometime in 2013. Is that true? Yes, we're still on target for that. We just, just still need the final tick of approval from the New South Wales State Government, which we keep being told is soon. Once that's done, you know, we think we can start construction probably August, hopefully no later than September, but somewhere in that interim. And that puts us in production about 12 months from that date. So let's say August next year. So we're very close to go. Everything's been put in place, ready to start the work. We've even gone in and purchased a lot of the long lead items like the ball mill, which is a major component of the processing plant. That'll actually be delivered on site in uh, November this year, which really puts it several months in ahead of where it might have been had we waited for final approval. So we're taking a bit of a financial risk, but it's all part of trying to get the project up and running as fast as possible again. Now, again, with regard to speed, does this mean that your first year out, you'll be able to produce about $3 million worth of gold per month? Uh, should do, yes, correct, yes. We'll actually be producing uh, about 5,000 ounces of gold a month, which will be $7.5 million a month. Yeah, correct. Oh, Is that so right? it's, it's double what I thought. It's almost $70 million a that's, year. That's the revenue, of which, of course, you then got to take off your costs. So, so basically, yeah, we've got to distinguish here between revenue and, and costs. Okay. And final cash flow. Net revenue, yeah. This is yeah. about $30 million. That's correct. That's about $30 million a year. In about 18 months, you'll be taking a big leap in revenue then at the start of production. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. And uh, I guess the nice thing about gold is that, A, it sells itself, so you don't need MOUs and offtake agreements. And usually the processing plants within one month to start up are, are fully operational, as distinct from you know, projects like Dubbo, which might take six months or 12 months. To get up to full capacity, the gold project will be fully on stream within inside a month. So, yeah, that's, that's certainly a big advantage. When you're generating significant revenue, can you shareholders potentially see a dividend? Certainly. It's something that we publicly stated the board believes in. We don't think we'd see it purely on the back of Tommingley because the funds generated by Tommingley are really going to be put back into the company, back into the ground. But once Dubbo's on stream, and let's say by 2016, and it's fully operational, we will be in a position to pay substantial dividends. And that's the goal. We've actually set out to do that. It's a stated public policy. And I think we'll get very close to doing that in 2016. Well, Ian, it's been a pleasure catching up with you again this week. Congratulations on your latest MOU with Shinetsu, and thanks for joining me today on the program. Well, thank you, Austin. Thank, thank you for your time again. I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, president of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Find their logo and click through to Alkane's website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Michael McClellan, president of Gale Force Petroleum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GFP.V and on the OTCQX as GFPMF. Gale Force Petroleum is a company focused on acquiring and exploiting underdeveloped and undervalued oil and gas reserves in mature basins, bringing operational expertise and capital to lower-risk development-type projects. Gale Force currently owns producing oil and gas properties in Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. So tell us something about Gale Force Petroleum, your producer. Yes, we have cash flow positive, profitable, productive operations, two years in the making. Production has increased over nine successive quarters. Cash flows generated continue to increase 
in lockstep. When was the company founded, Michael? Galeforce was launched under its new and current business plan in May of 2010 and began a series of acquisitions that have resulted in the company having an NAV of somewhere around 70 cents per share, maybe even a dollar per share. Our new reserves report will be out in August. As I mentioned, our production has increased every quarter since then. The business plan was to acquire underdeveloped properties in the southern U.S., focusing mainly in Texas, and bring capital and expertise to those underdeveloped properties and not take a lot of risk. We haven't drilled any wells yet. We've merely bought existing production or previously producing wells and then brought them back onto production. And the strategies work very well for us so far, and we've been able to earn very good returns for our investors. As compared to other resource companies, we're not waiting for you to find oil. You're not really wasting any money on speculative drilling, are you? No. We've only bought mainly proved shallow oil reserves, whether it was existing production or prior production in the recent past. And we've reactivated that production using some new technologies, but mostly proven technologies. So there isn't a lot of risk with what we do. And yes, the cash flows back out of the properties we purchased and developed have begun immediately, and that has helped us grow the business because we've been reinvesting that cash all the way along. Do you expect to have to go back to the market for any further funding? We are fully funded at the moment. You know, we don't expect to go back to market anytime soon, but we're a public company and we're growing very fast. We've done 10 acquisitions now in just over two years. At some point, we likely will need to raise additional capital to continue our growth, but that wouldn't be until sometime in 2013. When the price of oil comes off like it did this year, it doesn't really affect your bottom line much, does it? No, I mean, this is all good territory for us. We've modeled our business at $80 oil. And we've got a lot of hedges in place. There's swaps at $100 oil for about two-thirds of our production. So even if oil's at $80, we're still going to be getting over $100 on a majority of our production. Those hedges are in place, you know, on a declining basis through to middle of 2014. So we feel very secure about our cash flows over the next two years. That's very secure. Tell us about the board of directors of your company and your background as well, if you don't mind. My co-chairman now is Scott Patterson. He's one of Canada's biggest producing investment bankers ever, raising over a billion dollars for various junior resource and technology and other companies going back a couple decades. He currently sits on the board of Lionsgate Cinema, which I'm sure you've heard of being in California. So he's an excellent resource on the market side of things. Robert Johnson is a local Dallas director who's got 10 years experience in the oil and gas business, ran and owned a private oil and gas company with Emory Johnson of Operations for 10 years. He's a very successful entrepreneur in the technology business as well. Ruben Alba is ex-superior, ex-Halliburton. He's the chairman of our reserves committee, one of the most talented deal flow assessors that I've ever seen. He's got an excellent background in geophysics, geology, and engineering, so he brings a lot to the table. Charles Marlowe is a head trader and founder at Palos Management, which is a half a billion dollar fund out of Montreal. He mainly executes short-long strategies on oil and gas stocks, so he's very knowledgeable in our space. Again, has helped out greatly on the market side of things. Guillaume Dumas on our board. He's also our CFO. He's got 20 years experience in capital markets, raising money for junior companies. He's a lawyer by background, but has an excellent financial and legal mind. So we've actually got a overall a, an excellent board that brings a lot of different perspectives. There's a very collaborative approach at the board level that leads to very good decision-making, as far as I can tell, and I, and I love working with these guys. On the operational side of things, Emory Johnson, our chief of operations, he's got 40 years' experience in executive management. He spent the last 13 years successfully building and operating an oil and gas company in East Texas. 
very steady hand in terms of managing and the growth of our production. Daniel Smith is our chief technical advisor. He's based out of Tyler, Texas. He was formerly with XTO and oversaw a million cubic feet of gas production a day. Very challenging completion techniques that he executed on there. He's helping us with all aspects of our development. And actually, Daniel, Ruben, and Emery form our technical committee. And that technical committee oversees and approves all of our capital spending, both acquisitions and CapEx for development. And so between Ruben's experience with Superior and Halliburton, Daniel's with XTO and Emery's in operations, we've got an amazing technical team. And how about yourself? What brought you into the company? I was initially hired to restructure and relaunch Gale Force. My background is in finance and general business. I did a Bachelor of Commerce way back when and initially worked doing swap operations with Deutsche Bank in London, England. I helped set up financial systems for the Scottish Parliament in 2001 when the Parliament was founded. Then I was selling hedge funds and mutual funds for pioneer investments out of France to Europe, Middle East, Africa. When I came back to Canada, I moved to Montreal and did various financial roles, but I ended up becoming the CFO of a technology company that was listed on the Venture Exchange and ascertained a lot of corporate finance experience. Ultimately, that led to being the CFO and CEO of what is now Gale Force and being hired to restructure it and write the new business plan. I wrote that business plan with the help of others to take advantage of the current macroeconomic climate. We wrote it with the benefit of having seen the gas price collapse of 2008 and the general difficulty small companies were having financing themselves after the financial crisis. So we've only gone after shallow oil. We haven't really pursued gas at all. We do have some gas production, but it's liquids-rich gas production. We've gone after opportunities where the sellers of properties have often been in financial distress, which has allowed us to buy at relatively good values. Not every single property we've bought has been coming in or out of a bankruptcy, but some of them have been, and it's, it's enabled us to get in at very good prices on the properties before we start applying capital to the development part now we would intend to continue doing what we've been doing for the last two years because it works. We've got a little bit of a track record now, over two years of successfully doing what we had set up to do initially. And the business plan that we wrote back then is just as much or even more suitable for today's market. What I mean by that is that a company like ours is ideally positioned to take advantage of opportunities that a lot of other companies cannot take advantage of. We have a $15 million bank line of credit at 5%, so very low interest rate. There are not a lot of other companies that can raise equity capital like we can, and we've successfully raised all the equity we've needed to do what we've done so far. Clearly, your hedging strategy has paid off because, according to what I understand, you've made about $1.63 million on those hedges on the price of oil in the first quarter of this year. Yes, that's a great indication. Those are unrealized gains, but it does show you that even if oil prices do fall, we will be well cushioned. You know, at any time we could, with the permission of our bank, of course, dispose of that position, take that money and apply it toward new projects. Long-term strategy for the company five years down the road? We will have converted into an income trust or been bought out by someone bigger than us that's willing to pay what we're worth. And I would actually imagine that either of those two scenarios would unfold much sooner than five years from now. What we're attempting to do with Gilforce is to grow our production to 1,000, 1,500 barrels a day within the next two years. Could be sooner or later, depending on how successful we are in execution on the business plan. But we're on track for that. We're on track right now to get to 600 BOE per day in September, 800 BOE per day end of this year, sometime mid-2013, crossing over the 1,000 BOE per day threshold. And these numbers could be higher or lower, depending on the pace at which we do any future acquisitions. But when we get to those types of production levels and we're generating the type of cash that we'll be able to do with those types of production levels, it's a natural for us to try to convert ourselves into a loyalty trust or income trust. There's two approaches to that we're exploring right now. We've actually hired an investment bank to analyze the two approaches. One is to do so in the United States where the valuations that companies who are loyalty trusts are obtaining are significant multiple of what the 
Canada, there's the same thing. There's a royalty trust structure that works in Canada as long as there are foreign held assets. And given that Gale Force is a U.S. company, all of our assets are in the U.S., we can continue to be listed as a unit trust in Canada with foreign U.S. assets and qualify for that royalty trust structure. And in so doing, hopefully get the type of valuations that other royalty trusts are getting, which would be, you know, a two, three times multiple from what Gale Force is trading at today. Can you talk about your share structure? Gale Force has got a very clean share structure. We do have some preferred shares out, but they're essentially non-voting common shares that were created to restrict the voting power of certain key investors. So we've got common shares or preferred shares, and then we've got straight bank debt. And we don't have any, you know, weird convertible instruments, convertible debentures, things that make the, the cap structure difficult to, to understand. We've got about 85 million shares out overall and don't expect to go to market for another year. We've got $6 million of capital to spend today on top of just having acquired a $4 million property. There's additional capital that will become available to us likely from our bank line. We've got a very clean, good capital structure that's perfectly suited to help us grow our business rapidly over the next year. I've been speaking with Michael McClellan, CEO of Gale Force Petroleum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GFP.V and on the OTCQX as GFPMF. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.